Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. I'm excited today to introduce uh, my good friend, Courtney Tate, and you're going to be blessed um, as she helps us to see what God has shown her in her study of the word this week, and it's a gift to us to be able to to share that with her today. So I'm going to pray for Courtney, and, and she's going to get started. God, we just, we thank you for what you have already taught us in our own time in the word and in our time discussing at our tables, and we're thankful, Father, that you've taught Courtney in her personal time in the Word, and it's such a gift, Father, for you to teach us through her today. So would you help us to just put away all of the things that we bring into this space that are distracting us, put away all the things we have to do later? Would you give us just focus and attention on your Word, and would you move Courtney out of the way, and would you just teach us through her and help her, Father? We love you, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, it's really good to be back with you here at Bible study. I actually took off last semester, and it's just so good to be back and study God's Word together. Um, and I really missed it, and I, and I need it. I actually was telling a friend that. Um, and I just wanted to say, just as a little aside, um, I know this can be an intimidating situation to some. Um, and maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you haven't been to Bible study in a while. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's not always a comfortable situation coming in with a room full of women. Um, and so we're glad you're here, and we hope that you learn a lot out of the book of Ephesians. Um, so before we dive into today's passage, I'd like to tell you the story of a man in the book of uh, Acts named Apollos. And he arrived in Ephesus um, during Paul's absence. Um, Paul had started the Ephesian church on his second missionary journey, and he had left it in the care of Priscilla and Aquila. And in Acts 18, 24 through 25, it tells us that Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught accurately about Jesus. But there's also this really important detail about Apollos. In verse 25, it says that he knew only of the baptism of John. Now, John's baptism was not sufficient for salvation. It was only a precursor for things to come. And in Acts 1, 4 through 5, the disciples are told to wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here's this guy, Apollos. He's a God-fearing man, longs to share Jesus, and is even teaching accurately. But we see there is this deficiency in his ministry. He didn't know about the Holy Spirit that had been inaugurated at Pentecost. So he's kind of living in this Acts 1 time warp. Something very important is missing in his ministry. And so in Acts 18, 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. What a kind and gracious way to deal with that situation. 
And we know something must have taken place in this exchange because he was later blessed on a missionary journey by fellow believers. And so Paul then later returns to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And in Acts 19.2, he immediately goes to disciples and asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, no, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And he's like, well, what then were you baptized into? And they're like, well, John's baptism. And Paul then right there on the spot lays hands on them, prays for them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So what do we see at work here in this early church plant in Ephesus? Well, we see that there's some confusion and lack of knowledge about the Holy Spirit. But we also see this absolute priority and importance that Paul and his lay people place on receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was younger, I went through this very unique phase. And not many young girls experience such a distinctive and special interest. Um, unheard of in the state of Texas, right? (laughs) But I've since learned that you can Google why are girls so interested in horses? And there's literally tons of articles out there that refer to it as the horsey phase. My, my, my daughter's currently in this phase right now. So, um, spirit is our friend on Netflix. Um, But I had a bad case of this in elementary and middle school. And so anytime I'd see horses, I'd plead for my mom and dad to pull over so I could get out and pet them. And my mom, who had a regard for the land and homes of others, would turn me down quite often. But my dad, who didn't quite get the memo about private property, Oh, man, he'd like pull into people's driveways. I remember one time, I kid you not, we walked into someone else's barn. So I loved horses. My parents began to take me to horseback riding lessons. But as a child, I realized that everyone who owned a horse had this other thing called land. We didn't have land. We lived in a neighborhood, so I could never have a horse due to this. I just chalked it up to that. But when I was 13, my parents said, hey, we have this friend, and she's invited you to come and ride horses, and so we're just going to go over there. And, and we did, and she kept letting me ride this really beautiful, gray, dapple, Arabian horse named Rue. And one day we went there, and after riding him for a while, we're just kind of hanging out in the backyard, and Rue's grazing nearby, and my parents hand me a card. And it's written as if my grandfather had written it to me. And he had passed away that year very suddenly. So I'm already a bit confused reading this letter. And the letter said how he had enjoyed hearing about my love of horses. He'd always wanted me to have a horse. And so basically the letter was telling me that when my grandfather died, he had specified that he wanted my parents to use some of the inheritance money to get me a horse. But I didn't understand the letter. So I read it smiled, said thank you, and hand it back to my parents. And everyone's standing there like, wait, she's supposed to be crying or something at this point. And they're like, Courtney, I don't think you understand. Like, Pop wanted you to have a horse, and Rue is yours. Oh, man, just lost it. Because to me, a horse was just a nice idea, but I never thought a horse could be mine. 
And that's how many of us view the Holy Spirit. Nice idea, sounds great, but we don't see the Holy Spirit as ours. We fail to realize what we have been given in Christ. And that's why Paul wants to emphasize the difference the Holy Spirit has made in the Ephesian believers. Paul ends the first section of chapter one with this kind of nuclear bomb of a statement. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. It guarantees one day we will acquire possession of our inheritance as God's children. And it is our seal signifying we have been made alive in Christ. Now, as we enter into the second half today of Paul's prayers, I'd like to divide verses 15 through 16 into what Paul is showing the church at Ephesus. And then we're going to divide verses 17 through 23 into what Paul wants the Ephesian believers to know. Now, in verses 15 through 16, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you often in my prayers. Now, there's two qualities at work here that Paul shows us, intercession and commendation. Now, when Paul mentions their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, we see that word all, we kind of might want to cringe. Am I always faithful in Christ? Do I love all the saints? And if Paul's pointing this out, does this mean they're doing it perfectly? Well, he mentions their faith in the Lord Jesus. But later in Ephesians 2, we're going to learn that he must remind them that their salvation is by God's grace and not works. And he mentions their love for all the saints but we're gonna see the remainder of Ephesians again as him stressing the importance over and over again of unity. So since we know these qualities aren't complete, what's Paul doing here? Is he simply dishing out false flattery to make them feel good about themselves? Well, what's going on is the pastoral art of commendation. And that means to show appreciation or praise for another. Paul's commending the good he sees in the Ephesian believers, even though it's still imperfect and lacking. By seeing fruit in them that hasn't fully ripened, he's actually enabling that fruit to grow. I mean, you know, think about it. How easy is it for us to know what's wrong about somebody or find fault with them? But when we can see the righteousness of God at work in people and encourage what we see, we actually spur this work on in them and water its growth. Now we're gonna see rebuke and correction throughout this book, but, and this is needed as well in the life of a church, but, but this section of scripture reminds us that people cannot grow in a church culture where only their sins are noticed and scolded. Because a, a mature believer can recognize the work of grace in others. So Paul then moves on to express to them how he's remembering them in his prayers. And this simple statement highlights to us that when we're able to practice thankfulness for others, 
We can also truly pray for them, that one flows out of the other. We give thanks for the good we see in others, and we pray for the good that God has not yet brought about in them. And I know for me, whenever I'm struggling with dislike or anger or resentment for someone, I've sought to create a discipline in my life when I see this sin at work in me is to specifically pray for that person. And it's not an immediate fix, but I've always seen God change my heart and or that person when I make this a practice in my life. So when we pray for one another, we build the church. And when we let people know we're praying for them, we build them up and we empower them in their walk. How good does it feel when someone actually tells you that they prayed for you or are praying for you? Recently, I was sharing something with a friend of mine and at the end, I just kind of casually said, you know, yeah, just please be praying for me. And she was like, sure. Like, can I pray for you right now? And it was like, man, just that was so humbling to just go yes and receive that gift right then in the moment. And so I'd like to just for a little bit, let's understand prayer better. Like what does the Bible tell us about prayer? And in Psalm 141.2, David says to the Lord, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And in Revelation 5.8, John sees a vision where there are golden bowls full of incense and they signify the prayers of the saints. And incense was expensive and it appeared to have no usefulness or, you know, purpose. Its smoke and fragrance quickly vanished. And yet in the Bible, we see prayer compared to incense. It costs a great deal to discipline ourselves and work at it. It can seem to achieve nothing, but instead evaporate as the words leave our mouth. And yet the aroma of incense is one that is pleasing to God. And it was God's plans that orchestrated a special altar for incense in the tabernacle. So we don't always understand how we can change things by prayer or how our prayers have any effect on an all-knowing, all-powerful God. But we do know that God has not only allowed it, but commanded it. And it pleases him when his children come to him in prayer. So when we in obedience pray, spiritual power is released. And it is also a way that we lay down our lives for one another in the same way that Jesus laid down his life for us. And Elizabeth Elliot says it like this. In prayer, I am saying in effect, my life for yours, my time, my energy, my thoughts, my concern, my concentration, my faith, here they are for you. So it is that I participate in the work of Christ. So it is that no work of faith, no labor of love, no smallest prayer is ever lost. But like the smoke of the incense on the golden altar rises from the hand of the angel before God. Mm. I wish I could write like that. (laughs) Now, as we move into the next section of Paul's prayer, he turns to petitioning the Ephesian believers of what he wants them to know. And let me tell you a story to explain this. 
Um, and just as an aside, for those of you that were maybe traumatized by Lenny's dying goldfish, I give you a real life animal. <laughs> she was very kind to check on me last week to make sure I wasn't like triggered or anything, but anyway. So the blue whale is one of the largest animals on earth. And scientists initially thought they were mute. But we now realize that the blue whale produces one of nature's most powerful sounds. But the frequency is below a level that the human ear can hear. But with technology, we've been able to speed up the sound of theirs. It's called basso profundo. And we realize it can carry over thousands of miles. That is insane to me. So a blue whale can emit this sound in a New York harbor and literally be heard all the way in an English port. And this sound has been going on since creation, but it's been unknown to our hearing capability until now. And in the same way, Paul is praying that the work of the Spirit would enable Ephesian believers to become aware of a spiritual reality that has been unknown to them. And he says in verse 17, the way that they will become aware of this is through the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, and by the eyes of their hearts being enlightened. Why does Paul want this? Well, he wants this so they will grow in their knowledge of God and know him better. This knowing of God's not simply an intellectual knowledge. It's one of our mind, will, and heart. One can know about God, have all the right thoughts about God, but never allow that knowledge of God to affect their daily realities. And so you might be sitting there going like, well, yeah, Courtney, that's why I'm here. Of course I want to know God better. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, in in verse 17, we see that it is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that gives us this knowledge. We need the provision of heaven. How do we get this provision? Well, we must recognize our desperation and our need for God himself to be the provider of these things. You know, many times we have this inflated view of ourselves. Um, We like to see ourselves as a lot more self-sufficient than is true. To know God better, to have this wisdom and enlightenment and revelation is to begin with a heart of humility that asks God to give us this understanding. And I know someone um, very recently who had a child born with Down syndrome. Uh, in, in those first months, this mother had no idea what to do or how to even begin getting her baby help. Just an utter sense of this great need and no idea how to meet it. But as they began walking out each day, going to the doctors, getting referrals, there's this entire checklist that you have to go through. A whole world of help became known to them that they hadn't even known existed. Here was this world of of dedicated and caring individuals who knew what to do and knew their needs. And this world had always been there, but we don't know it's there because we don't always have the needs this family did. And the same is true when we come to Christ with our needs. 
We need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened so we will recognize our great spiritual need and also see the provision that is there and met in Christ. I have people that will share with me sometimes, you know, their struggles with prayer or reading his word. And and the question I ask again and again is, have you asked God to help you understand? Have you asked God to help you pray? Do we realize that we actually need him to help us with our spiritual disciplines? And what I love about Christianity is that it invites us to admit this helplessness. It says, yes, bring your weakness, bring your fragility before a mighty and powerful savior. And I find that very comforting. So when we ask for heaven's provision and we recognize our need for God to intervene in order to gain this enlightenment, we also must pray that when God does supply us with these gifts, that we would be receptive to them. And what does Paul want the Ephesian believers to be receptive to? Well, he mentions three specific blessings we have in Christ and it's set apart by the word what in front of them. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now, hope in the ancient world was viewed as rare as it probably is today in our modern world. A common inscription on headstones was the, in the first century world was, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. And the ancient world of Ephesus was consumed with magic, astrology, religious cults. They believed that these forces were the real realities that manipulated their lives. So they had little hope for anything else beyond that. But hope in the Bible in Galatians 5.5 5 says we await the hope of righteousness. And Jesus Christ is our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. In Titus 1.2, Paul states that God has given us the hope of eternal life. So when we piece like puzzle pieces together the word hope throughout the New Testament, it is this. Our hope is that one day we will live eternal, resurrected lives in the new heaven and earth. We will stand face to face before God without sin because of our salvation that Jesus bought for us. And until that time, we live with inward confidence that this day will come. So Paul then goes on to pray that the Ephesian church would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, in the ancient world, temples were not only meant to house whatever particular God they ascribed to, but they actually also served as banks. People would deposit their money there because, you know, what better place to put your money and know it will be safe than next to a God that could bring, you know, death and destruction if you make it mad. So the treasury was usually in a hall beyond the main hall that housed that God. So in order to reach your money or deposit your money, you're literally having to pass by this God every time. And the greater and more powerful that God was, the greater the wealth that was housed there. And there was significant wealth at the temple of Artemis. The Ephesian people were more than familiar with this temple. All of Ephesus oriented itself around this temple. 
the Ephesian believers' money could have possibly been housed there, but Paul is asking them to reorient their understanding of riches in light of God's work. He's praying that they would know that now they are God's rich inheritance that he has provided to himself. Now, elsewhere in scripture, we see references to the inheritance that we get as children of God. But this passage is actually saying that God has given us to himself as his inheritance. Now, I know my former state as an unsaved sinner and the traces of that that I still bear. How amazing is it that God should say that about us? And I think the reason behind Paul praying this so earnestly for the Ephesian believers is found in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Paul knows that when we grasp how rich of an inheritance we are in him, it will propel us to praise and proclaim him and his excellencies, and he gets the glory for that. So Paul's last statement is that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And we know that Paul saved the best for last because he goes on to expand this concept of power in verses 20 through 23. And again, it's important to remember the Ephesian church, where they were coming from, Their lives had been entrenched in darkness and deception until Christ saved them. These people had lived in fear that there were angry spiritual forces that could at any moment get them. And Paul seeks to remind them that God's power prevails over other spiritual forces. Now in the Old Testament, power was measured by creation, the exodus, or the mighty works of God that y'all learned about in the book of Joshua, the fall of Jericho, the conquest of Canaan. But here in Ephesians, Paul illustrates power by showing the conquest of sin that God achieved when he resurrected his son. And Romans 8, 11 states that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is there in us to overcome sin, to grow in holiness, to resist Satan and to be on mission. These are the blessings that are made available to us as Christians when we know him. And I think that all of us in this room want to know God better. Um, A question I ask people a lot is, why do you want to know God better? What makes you want to grow as a believer? What they don't know is, I ask them this question because it's something that I ask continually in my own relationship with God. It's a good way for me to uncover idols in my life or reveal sinful motivations that I need to lay before the Lord. And what I can find sometimes when I ask this question is that my desires to grow as a believer can be very self-focused. 
oh, I can, I know how to throw out all the terms of doing it for God's glory. But is that my reality? Many times I have to say no. And I don't know if any of you feel this way, but, but sometimes I just want to feel like a better version of myself to me. And I want to appear like a better version of myself to others. And God simply just becomes this mechanism to achieve the goal of glorifying me and not the Lord and King of my life. And I dethrone him in my heart when I just make him a cog in my machine that's set on the dial of perfection. And in the midst of these competing drives within us, Jesus continues to initiate and pursue and ask us if it's him we want. At the end of this life, if all we get is Jesus, is he enough? So before the busyness of this day resumes, I'd like to pray a psalm over you. So I'd like for you, if you could, to just close your eyes and just, before we rush off, just meditate on these words as I pray them for you. Thank you so much for listening to me today. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is a man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Amen.